Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Funke Avimbola. Uh, if you want to build world-class communication skills, you should be listening to the Art of Communication podcast with my good friend, Greg Rice. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. Hey guys, today I'm talking with Dr. Funke Abinola about a really important topic right now here on June 11th, 2020, um, which is discrimination, diversity, and inclusion. See, Dr. Abinola is a diversity leader in the UK, and she's a regular commentator for BBC, and she's a TEDx speaker as well on diversity issues. And she's a real proponent of diversity and inclusion across the UK and the world. She's also CEO of the Austin Bronte Consultancy, where she provides consulting services for a broad range of C-suite board advisor services. So we talk about a number of things, including the challenges that she faced in getting her first job based on just her name. She had to work twice as hard, make over 150 calls just to get that first interview. We talk about the strategies that leaders can deploy to ensure that they're not discriminating in their application and hiring process, as well as the huge value of diversity for a company, and specifically in decision-making and innovation. We also talk about how to recognize and mitigate those underlying biases that we all have that we might not realize that we have, but that have a huge impact with how we interact with others in the world. So this is a really powerful interview, guys, especially given the state of the world today. And there's just some great advice here about how we can all move forward in a more positive and empowering way. Dr. Abimbola, thank you so much for joining me today on the Art of Communication podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about a really pressing topic today with everything that's going on around discrimination as we are recording this here in early June when there's a lot of things happening around the world right now. A lot of folks focused on this issue. And and I know that you've had a passion for this and been working on discrimination for a long time. So very excited to get get your thoughts and insights on the topic and how we can just be doing a better job around it, all of us. So, but before we dive into that, I'd love to just kind of go back and and talk about kind of your experience and how you've experienced discrimination challenges throughout your career that really drove your passion to focus on this issue. Yes. So I have my first career is in law. And uh, even before entering the profession, I I had some serious challenges. And uh, the context for this was actually quite surprising for me because I come from a privileged Nigerian background. I was privately educated and I went to a top law school. I had all the grades, you know, as far as I was concerned. It should have been green lights and and, and a shoo-in to get into the profession. But I had to make over 150 phone calls before I could secure enough interviews to to get the experience that I needed before I could formally qualify uh, as as a solicitor um, just over 20, just under 20 years ago now. And it was a a horrible experience, you know, it was unexpected. I, I really didn't think that would happen. It became very clear that my name was an issue because I'm obviously minority ethnic from my name. I hadn't anglicized my name in any way, shape or form. 
Friends of mine who had English sounding names were having a much easier time getting in, often with poorer grades. Uh, ironically, some of them were actually black. You know, a few of them were West Indian, but of course, a lot of West Indian names are anglicized, so they would at least mm. get an interview. But it was without a doubt to do with my name. And it's something that I've talked about a huge amount since then. And that was the initial uh, challenge that I had. The second challenge I had, Craig, was after I had my son. I had no inkling about the challenges that one would face as a corporate lawyer, which is what I was doing at the time, returning as a, as a mother with a young baby. I mean, I just didn't think that there would be any problems with juggling or that I might have challenges with my employer not willing to uh, support or accommodate. And to be fair to the firm, they did try very hard to accommodate as far as they could. But the actual structure of law firms is not terribly family-friendly. We, we talk about it being male-shaped. I mean, we often say that, you know, it assumes mm. that you have a wife at home and, you know, someone else is dealing with all the care responsibilities, which poses a real problem for women who tend to be the ones, of course, who do take on the bulk of the care responsibilities. So that was the second shock. It was returning from maternity leave after I'd had my son. And I ultimately had to leave that central London law firm to keep my career going because there was just no way I could maintain the expectations of the firm. I left London altogether, moved out to the suburbs and started working for regional firms. Again, that left a marker in the sand for me and a bit of taste in my mouth, really, that I'd had to make that choice. So those are some early examples, and there are many, many other examples within my diversity work itself, which I'd be very happy to discuss as challenges in, in and of themselves, um, Greg, if you'd like me to. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll certainly dive into those. Just to touch on uh, kind of the maternity one first, I know it's certainly a challenge here in the U.S., where you know they on, we only get maybe 90 days or yeah. six months at most as far as maternity leave and paternity leave. Is, is even more of a challenge, right? If the father mm. wants to stay home with the child. And, uh, you know, that first year of the child's life is so important. I've never thought that that was enough. And I think more and more folks are coming around to that. And just an interesting side note, you know, we've adopted a number of children in our family and trying to take maternity or paternity leave from an adoption perspective is extra challenging in the U.S. because a lot of what drives maternity leave is kind of the medical side of it. And the fact sure. that you're able to take off because of the medical piece, but when you adopt, you don't have that. So it's just mm. an extra added challenging dynamic, especially if you're a mother working professionally and trying to do both. But wanted to go back to the discussion around the challenges just related to your name, right? Mm. I think it brings up a really important point that, I mean, some of it might have been outright bias, right? That folks were saying, I'm just not interested. But some of it might have been underlying as well. Like folks not even realizing that they are not diving into your resume or your application or interviewing you because your name's different, right? So yes. I'd love if you could share a little bit about that, kind of the unseen bias that I think resides in all of us that really yes. impacts how we operate and communicate, but we, we don't even realize it. So we can't address it sometimes. Yes. I mean, with the whole CV and the name issue, it's been proven that if you have a, a foreign name, whatever that might be, non-English, non-anglicized, you have to send out at least twice as many applications to get 
a callback of any any description. But there are many, many studies. In fact, the former prime minister, David Cameron, uh, is quoted as having recognised that. You know, when I was looking into this a few years ago, he actually went on the record and said, said this in the context of a wider issue around equality of opportunity or the lack of it. So that's been proven. You know, I have friends who've run experiments where they've sent exactly the same CV. The only difference was the name. And the anglicized name has had far more positive response than the Arabic sounding name, Islamic, African, etc. So people very close to me have run this experiment. So that's a proven fact. It just is what it is. And that does happen. Now, but why the bias piece is, is a big challenge because we all have our biases. You know, as human beings, we tend to flock towards those who are like us. It's, it's, it's a survival instinct that we all have. Yeah. We all process things in that way. I'm far more likely to feel affinity to a mother of, uh, you know, a 17-year-old son, for example, as I have, because that's my lived experience. And therefore, I'm going to flock to someone like that over someone who maybe doesn't have children, has never experienced some of the battles I've had. You know, it's a natural thing. And I will openly admit that I have my own biases, just like anyone else. The problem is when you act on those biases, you know, first of all, denying you have them is an issue for a lot of people. A lot of people seem to feel they don't have these biases. We all have them. But when you act on those biases, the detriment of others, and it gets the point where it denies equality of opportunity, that's where I have a real issue. And unfortunately, with many recruitment processes and promotions or lack thereof, biases are are rife throughout the actual process. The process itself doesn't actually present enough safeguards against those inherent biases. And that's the problem. That's a real issue. So what do you think are those safeguards that could be applied that would help that scenario? Yeah, so there are a number of things that um, employers are trying that are working. And it needs to be using lots and lots of different things. No one solution actually will get us there. So blind recruitment is a starting point. Removing the names and the CVs, that's very, very common now, certainly uh, with the civil service uh, application process. They're pushing very, very hard for anonymized CVs, where you anonymize, where you're educated, anything that would be a marker for your social class or background, your name doesn't appear, where you live doesn't appear, because of course, where you live can also dictate your social class. And I've seen a lot of examples of that. So that works in terms of the initial filtering stage and getting in in the door. And it will help tremendously with the selection process for the initial interview. Of course, when it comes to the actual interview and the panel, then we have another hurdle uh, to overcome. That's where it's very important to have a diverse panel. You need to have, you know, a mixture of ages, backgrounds. I've seen that in, in recruitment processes as well. And, you know, I'm currently um, exploring uh, future roles, you know, starting later this year. And in at least one case, I had very, very young members of the team on the panel alongside very senior leaders and a real mixture of different ethnic backgrounds and, you know, et cetera, even different technical backgrounds. And I could really see that that organization was trying very hard to guard against the biases and everyone had equal weighting into making the decision about whether or not to progress going forward. And that was inherent and built into the process. So these are the sorts of things. There are many other examples, but essentially it's trying to anonymize the candidate in some way because 
you know, you need to be focusing just on the candidate's experience and expertise or indeed their potential for the future Mm -hmm. role rather than being hampered by where they live, their social class, male or female, you know, religious uh, background, etc. So those are some examples of what's happening now. So step one is kind of, uh, well, obviously anonymizing to get them in the door. Yes. With an equal, on an equal playing field anyway. And then Absolutely. step two is a diverse panel that can assess their value outside of just you know, their race or their background yes. necessarily. Yes. It, it's interesting. I'll tell you, when I started my career, I started my career in banking. And I remember I was sitting my first year in like a room with a bunch of the senior leaders of the bank. I looked around, it was all middle-aged white men. There were like mm. 60 people in the room. Every single one was a middle-aged white man. It was absurd. And I was like, there's something wrong with this picture. Mm. I'd love for you to share a little bit around the value of diversity, right? Not only mm. do we not want to do it because it's wrong, but we're actually losing if we're not building a diverse workforce, right? Mm, Yes. Again, there's a lot of data that shows that the more diverse you are as an organization, the more profitable you are. You know, if profit is is what drives you as an organization and is is your marker for success, McKinsey in particular, year on year, do an updated survey uh, where they look at the drivers for success, markers for success, And if you are more um, gender diverse, you are 15% more profitable than, you know, with all all other things being equal against um, similar companies of similar size, etc. And I think it's 35% if you also add ethnicity into the mix from memory. So... You are you're going to make more money. I mean, for some people, that in itself is is enough of a a motivation to get this right. I mean, you have to sort of leave whatever you can, right? The other thing that I would say about the benefit is diverse organisations feel very different to work in. Having worked at four different law firms before, then working in the pharmaceutical industry where I work currently where it's a lot more diverse. Certainly the companies that I've worked for have been more global and it's been focused on innovation and discovering the next uh, blockbuster drug to help patients or whatever. That's been the driver rather than which university someone went to or which school, et cetera. Very different to the way law firms tend to filter their talent. The feel of the organization is fundamentally different. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've worked at a very large global organization, the largest biotech, and we had over 50 different nationalities represented at the UK site. I mean, I had never, ever experienced anything like that. More recently, I've worked for a smaller global pharmaceutical company. We had 35 employees and 20 nationalities represented. So... There must be something there, right? Because I wasn't seeing that in the law firms. So the feel is very different. You know, you're seeing people who look like you. You're seeing others uh, from a visible minority in senior leadership roles. You are being given equal weighting with your points of view. You're being heard. You're being listened to. There's a deeper understanding of different cultures and struggles. And, you know, all of that um, feeds into higher engagement levels and higher staff retention and loyalty. And, you know, I just saw that year on year, having moved out of the legal profession and into the pharmaceutical industry. And it's, I much prefer the latter, I have to say, you know, I felt a stronger sense of belonging. So that's a difference. There there really is a difference between a diverse organization and one that isn't diverse. Not to mention in all cases, right? Your customer base is a diverse set of people, 
So being able to reflect that within your decision-making is huge. And, And I think you mentioned a ton of other value points. One thing that you mentioned is seeing other people like you in leadership roles. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about the importance of role models, both within a company, but also in society in general? Yeah, I mean, the lack of visible role models for certain underrepresented groups is, is again, a well-recognized, identified issue. Mm -hmm. I got involved in a review of the criminal justice system with one of our our politicians over here. Very high-profile piece of work. A lot of us were involved. And it was focusing specifically on the challenges that minority ethnic offenders would face in the criminal justice system, or even before you're, you know, convicted, etc. You know, why was it that there was so much overrepresentation at all stages of the process? Mm-hmm. And I got involved on the role modeling piece because one of the issues and challenges that predominantly young, young black men were having was that they couldn't see anyone who looked like them. So, you know, I had one young man who'd just come out of prison and had managed to get his life back together say to me that when he was at school, he was told there were three options for him. It was either sport. If it wasn't sport, it was entertainment. If it wasn't that, it was a life of crime and prison. And those were the only options. And he said that is actually indicative of the vast majority of young black men in this country And looking at the data, that is the case if you're born into a socially deprived background, etc. Those are the only options you see as being possible. They see very powerful images of of black, you know, athletes, and uh, but they don't see the abundance of black lawyers, for example. There are many more black lawyers than there are successful black athletes. But he he had no concept of that. And likewise with entertainment, you're you know far more likely to make it as a black lawyer than you are as a, as a hip-hop artist or reggae or whatever it might be. So he said that not seeing those examples meant that he limited his options and it had a direct impact and he ended up in the life of crime, going to prison, and he was now out of prison. And there were many examples like that. So if you can't see what you can become, you just don't think it's possible, Greg. You know, And if you're from an underrepresented group, that becomes so important to have those visible role models that are representative of what is actually possible for you as someone who, who is Black. So it, it's crucial. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And just speaking about the criminal justice system, at least as it is in the US, probably similar in the UK, if you're a minority and you fall into the system, it's much harder to get out of than yes. if you're not a minority. Because yes. it's just a stacked up against you that much more. And the worst is always assumed, which is exactly. a, a definite challenge. So thinking about young males and role models, tell me a little bit about how you interact with your son around these topics. Yeah. So my son is, I know, I always smile when people ask me that. So he's now 17 and a half. Um, He's 18 this year. He looks older, you know, than he is. People assume he's already working and has been to university. And, you know, he doesn't go to university until next year. He is six foot four, uh, wears a hoodie. You know, he, he fits whatever the stereotype is that the police might have of a young black man who might be in trouble or getting into trouble or doing whatever. Physically, my son would fit that stereotype. And it is a huge concern to me. We're very lucky that we don't live in London anymore. He was born in southeast London, which is where there's an abundance of this kind of tension and stop and search and, and so on. But I recognized very early on that I didn't want him actually growing up in that area. And we left when he was a toddler and I've never looked back. So he's never been stopped and searched where we live because 
we live in the suburbs. You know, we just don't have, it's, it's not an urban area. It's, it's, it's very, very different. That said, given the diversity work that I do outside of my day job, he is acutely aware of what the challenges are and the issues. You know, he's very aware that he's in a very privileged um, background as well. You know, we are a privileged family. He's very aware of that. He's aware that he will be the fourth generation of graduates in our family. You know, so we come from uh, a Nigerian family that values education and, you know, really does aspire very highly with each generation. So he will be the fourth generation in our family to get a degree. And he knows that we have high expectations of him and that there's absolutely no question of him having any option of going off track or, you know, he's just got Mm -hmm. so many people constantly on his case. And parental expectation and family expectation is a huge factor in how young people turn out. I'm very honest with him about the struggles. He's been with with me to many talks. He's met politicians with me in parliament. He has actually become an advocate himself uh, around women in tech. Uh, He's a future software engineer because he's recognizing there's a real issue in in the tech sector and he's doing all sorts of things with computer club at school, et cetera, to try and encourage more girls to get into tech careers early on. So I I keep it real with him, Greg, you know, I I do in an age appropriate way, of course, but he's very aware. He's very, very aware of what's going on. And I think he's more than, more than ready for it really. Yeah, no, that's great. And you and I spoke a little bit before about the fact that I have a Hispanic child and I am a white male, right? And my Hispanic child is growing up in this I don't know if you want to call it privileged, right? But we're in suburbia as well, right? And most of his friends are white kids, right? White Mm. boys, and that's fine. There's no issue with that. But I talk to him often about how he will be perceived differently outside of this world. And he needs to consider that in the way that he acts and carries himself and and all those things. And especially Mm -hmm. the way he responds if, say, questioned by police or something like that, right? He can't be snarky about it, if you will. Mm. So, but coming from me, uh, kind of a white male, it doesn't always land, I think, with him. But it's it's just a really interesting topic and something I always have my eye on and I'm thinking about with him specifically. But first, have you ever thought about doing your own podcast? I'll tell you, if you're a business owner, you absolutely should be. There's no better way to get your name out there, to grow your network, and really develop a relationship with your customers. I can tell you in the short time that I've been doing this podcast, I've already had conversations with top global influencers, Fortune 500 CEOs, and a host of other really cool people that I otherwise would not have had the opportunity to connect with. But you might be thinking, hey, it might be really hard to do a podcast. I don't know where to start, or I just don't have time. But I'll tell you, if you work with my friends at World Class Media, they make it super easy. That's who I worked with. With their done-for-you podcast, literally, all I have to do is just record the episode and they do everything else. From end to end, including all editing and production, development of my intro and outro and music, my artwork and website, development of my show notes, and submission of my show to all the major podcasting mediums. They even created my social media cards. And they offer me coaching along the way as well to help me to become a world-class podcaster right out of the gate. So if you've ever considered starting a podcast, you owe it to yourself to talk to world-class media. Because I tell you, it's a lot easier than you think. So just go to gregjrice.com backslash done for you to learn more about the done for you podcast service and to set up a free consultation. All right, let's hop into the show. So 
you talk also about kind of the mythical they, right? Yeah. That they will fix this problem. And it's not our problem. It's their problem. They have to do something about it. But the they is really the we, right? Because, yes, And I is. think that's part of what we're seeing right now is that all of us have been saying they for a long time. And now they're saying, no, uh, changes have to happen. And now it has mm-hmm. to be me, mm-hmm. right? Because things have yeah. to happen now or things will just keep getting worse as far as your relationship goes. Yeah. So I'm curious of your thoughts outside of kind of the hiring context, right? As we just talk about individuals, how can mm-hmm. we work on one hand against our own biases, right? And have better communication together. How can we be open to diverse perspectives? Because I think there's less and less of that happening when there needs to be more and more of that happening. And then on the flip side, for folks who are more diverse, do you have any thoughts for them on how to communicate more effectively and enter the conversation in the most constructive way possible? So, I mean, just on the first first question, really, around how we get better understanding, it starts with a conversation. When I think about very, very strong allies that I have who, who are white uh, and male, and I've got a healthy representation, thankfully, of, of friends who are close to me who are privileged because they're white men and recognize that they are privileged uh, because they're in that situation and go out of their way to improve the lot of others who don't have that privilege. But it started with a conversation. It started with them actively listening to my lived experience, started with not denying uh, that it hadn't happened or, you know, playing it down or becoming defensive on their part that, or feeling guilty or whatever. You know, it was, it was simply a case of, I, I just want to understand more about what you've been through. Now, the way that I was successful in getting that message across was with the stories I was able to tell them. Because there has to be a heart connection here when you are trying to win people over. It's one of the key tools to persuasion and influence. Mm-hmm. If there's no heart connection, if you don't convey the, the appropriate level of, of emotion that you need to convey around what it is, and that will be different depending on the audience, it's it's very difficult, if not impossible then, to gain any traction beyond the understanding. You know, Ultimately, you want there to be understanding. And then what can we do about it? How can we work together in a collaborative way? So I have enough stories that I draw on, you know. I mean, often all I have to say is I had to make 150 phone calls to get my first role. I mean, when I say that, people are flabbergasted. They can't believe that someone who's gone on to achieve what I've achieved and, you know, met the you know met members of the royal family. There's a lot of stuff I've managed to do, you know, throughout my career because of what I do. They can't believe that there was a time when I ever struggled just to get get my foot in the door. So often it stops at just that one story. And then I talk about returning from maternity leave and what that felt like and how upsetting that was. And I go into quite a lot of detail about what an isolating experience it was during my time at that firm before I decided to, to leave London. And again, you know, I found that male, female, black, white, whoever's listening to this story can't help but be touched by this because I convey the same level of upset, frankly, as I felt all those years ago. So the storytelling is the key to getting that understanding across. It's very, very important that your lived experience gets across uh, through these stories. And the stories then illustrate and amplify what the underlying issues are. And it's unequivocal, you know, 150 phone calls. I mean, 
that that is what I had to do. There's no, there was no black and white about that. I actually had to make 150 phone calls. I actually had to leave central London to keep my career going. You know, that's a fact. And these were the facts I faced in the circumstances when I returned from maternity leave. So it's unequivocal storytelling with the right level of emotion. And, and that works every single time. Yeah, that, that's great. I think authentic communication around real experience and emotion is really powerful in any context. Yeah. And the wrong way to go about it is being adversarial, right? Exactly. And it would be easy for you to do that and be angry, but you would not be able to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish if you took that approach. Exactly. Just, I was thinking as you were saying that as well, I mean, how many folks give up around that hundredth phone call? You know, I mean, yeah. you kept going to get to 150, but if you hadn't, where would you be today? Maybe, right? Yeah. Or I'm sure you'd be successful anyway, right? But so many folks give up and lose their opportunity. And when you just make it twice as hard for somebody, you're making it twice as likely that they give up. And, and that's exactly. just, just a really tough situation. It is hard. It is tough. I mean, what kept me going was remembering the family I came from, remembering my heritage, my history, the sense of confidence that my my parents had instilled in me. You know, that's what kept me going, knowing that I absolutely did have what it took to make it. But a lot of people, of course, who look like me don't have that kind of background and support. And they do give up because, you know, they just don't think it's possible. Uh, But thankfully, I didn't. I think it all comes together. Like So the family expectations we were talking about earlier, the role models, seeing folks who've done it before, those are yes. the kind of things that help let you know it's possible, motivate you to make that 150th call. Or if you don't have those, you might make five calls and give up. Like, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, exactly. it, it means so much when it comes to perseverance, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so interesting. But so just a couple more questions I'd like to ask everybody who, who I have on the show. The first one is that, and I think you'd agree here, but I really believe in the power of conversations. Yes. And I always like to ask my guests that there's one conversation they can point to in their lives that had a really big impact upon the path that they ended up taking. It'd been a conversation I had with my father when I was 16, which quite literally had an impact on my path because (laughs) I come from a family of doctors And I'm the eldest child within that family of doctors. And my father was sacrificing a huge amount to educate me privately in the UK. And the expectation was that I was going to become a doctor. I mean, specifically, I was going to become a surgeon. And then other siblings had been assigned their various specialities long before they'd even entered medical school. But I didn't want to become a doctor. You know, I I had no inclination uh, towards medicine. I had to tell my dad when I was 16 that was the case. I needed his support uh, in a very real way to carry on paying my school fees. And that was a pivotal conversation with him because thank goodness, you know, with the support of others who also had to help me persuade him otherwise, he supported me. He was very, very proud that I qualified, became a lawyer and went on to be successful. But had that conversation not gone my way, I would be a very, very unhappy surgeon talking to you right now about uh, issues with COVID, probably and elective surgeries and things like that. But uh, I would have been forced to do medicine. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. So that conversation stands out for me without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> uh, it's great that he supported you, though, on the path that, that you did. were passionate about. He so did. did your siblings become doctors or did they take they different paths? They all did. Well? All of them. All of them became doctors. <laughs> Nobody followed you, huh? <laughs> all wow. doctors. And happily so. You know, yeah. so. That was right for them. Well, I guess it's good if you happen to need, need a doctor, right? You know, yes, a bunch absolutely. Of them. <laughs> 
Oh, great, great. So second question, as you think about your journey so far, all that you've accomplished, if you could have had one communication skill in more abundance that would have made it a lot easier for you to do everything that you've done, what would that have been? Mm. I think around the storytelling piece, I did mm. used to get very angry when I was younger. You know, I found it very difficult to contain the, manage the emotion, shall I say, in, in a way that wouldn't come across as being off-putting or, you know, all the things that we discussed earlier, Greg. And I think that's something that has come with experience, obviously, in maturing over the years and recognizing that, you know, starting with the end goal in mind, you do really need to be mindful about how you deliver these hard-hitting messages. But that's certainly something looking back when I was much younger. I didn't even know how to articulate uh, the experiences at the time, really, without getting very upset and it would all get lost in translation. So that's something that I've honed over the years and something I wish I'd learned a lot sooner than now. And you've already spoken about the power of the storytelling, and and really that's how you get your message across today. And on one hand, you can look at it and say, well, what's going to serve me, right? Is my anger going to serve me or is telling this in more of an emotional, passionate way going to serve me? But that's easy for me to say, sitting over here and not experience what you experienced. To be able to get over that anger is something that is laudable. Any thoughts on how to get past the anger for folks who face very challenging issues who are angry, but know that it's not going to serve them? I think there's an appropriate forum within which you can show that anger, you know, close friends, family, et cetera. Uh, You know, if you want to cry or whatever it might be, you know, that there is that outlet. It's important to go through that process because you do need to process the emotion. You know, we're not talking here about denying the fact that you've had something that is deeply upsetting and offensive that's happened. So recognizing that was an important part for me, that there was an appropriate forum, a safe space, if you like, where I could I could vent, I could just really just let it out without any fear of judgment and be supported. And then once you feel that you've healed a bit more from the experience, you can then start telling those who aren't so close to you what, what it's been like with a view to changing things going forward. So that's the way I'd go about doing it. Start with those within your trusted inner circle first and then expand from there. You can't just bury the anger. You need an avenue to let it out, but it needs to be in the right context. Again, what's going to serve you most effectively um, in the goals. So that's, that's very interesting. All right. Last communication for you. Who's the best communicator that you know, either know of or know personally. And why do you say that about them? Yes. So for me, and I've been very, very lucky to have met Prince Charles. um, (laughs) It would be Prince Charles. Wow. And I say that because uh, when I, I received a Queen's Honour three years ago for my um, the impact of my diversity work and the work I do with young people, which is was an incredible experience and continues to be amazing. But receiving it from Prince Charles at Buckingham Palace was amazing because I had yeah. a one-minute conversation with him. He'd been fully briefed on me, knew how to pronounce my name, where I was from in Nigeria, you know, he had all this information about me. I specifically asked him about something. I said, you know, it would be wonderful if he held a reception for the Commonwealth. He hadn't done one of those in a while. And, you know, what would it take to make that happen? He took that on board. I thought nothing of it. And then a few months later, I received an invitation from him saying, I'd love you to attend this Commonwealth um, reception. I met him a second time within the space of 12 months. So his communication style is is incredible. I mean, this is someone who couldn't be any more privileged, right? You know, Mm -hmm. he's heir to the British throne. He's had a life of privilege. 
Uh, and yet in that one minute when he met me, he made me feel as if I was the only person in that room. Uh, when I met him the second time, he remembered me. You know, he actually did remember. I showed him the picture on my phone and he said, oh gosh, of course I remember you. And whether or not he did, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I certainly felt as if he did remember me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And we had we had a great conversation. Uh, you know, there's a picture of us actually on, on my LinkedIn where we're having this conversation at the reception. And I've watched and observed him far more closely since then. I mean, he, he did get coronavirus uh, and it was very publicly announced that he got it mm-hmm. and recovered. And since then, he's been, he's just, his emotional intelligence is just through the roof. You know, he's been talking about the impact of COVID on families and education and young people. Uh, again, this is now his lived experience and he's factoring that in to his communication style. And, and he's been obviously made very vulnerable uh, by the fact that he himself was unwell. And he's been very authentic again around that. So I think he's a master communicator and I respect and admire him a great deal, I must say. Wow, that's great. Yeah, not someone that I have much perspective, Ron. Obviously, from a global perspective, you know, I see some of the news and that kind of thing. Obviously, I haven't met him, but that, that's tremendous to hear. I always love to hear when folks who are in power take the time to really connect with people, understand them, listen to them, value them, because I, I think that makes them that much better of a leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, last question for you then. Where can folks find you? Where can they learn more? Where can they get involved if they want to? Yes, a great question. I'm very happy to connect. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Funke Abimbola, MBE. I'm the only person on LinkedIn with that name. <laughs> so it's great to have such a unique name as well. <laughs> from that um, perspective. Now it's from great that to have perspective, that, that it's that great to have a unique name. So do feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got my own personal website. Uh, again, that's funkeabimbola.com. It's the only website with that name. <laughs> so uh, again, easy to contact me through uh, my personal assistant um, on, on the website. And I'm also on Twitter. I'm not terribly active on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter at, as um, at champ1diversity. I think it is. Yeah, champ1diversity. But LinkedIn and my website are the best ways of following my work. I'm very active on LinkedIn and post daily on you know different things I'm up to and what others are doing. So that's a good way to keep in touch. Yeah, for sure. And are there specific causes folks can help support um, either in the UK, the US or anywhere around the world, I guess? I suppose there's a lot that's coming out of the latest Black Lives Matter uh, movement, if you want to call it that. There are a lot of things that are being planned as a result of that. And I would just encourage everyone to gain a better understanding and to listen you know, listen, and if, if it's, you know, if you then choose to become an ally, and it would be wonderful if you could do, whatever that looks like for you, then please do commit to that. You know, having built on the, the earlier understanding and from effective communication, I would love that to be the case. I would really like that to happen as a result of all this. Wow, that's tremendous. And one thought I have, just the more real conversations we can have with folks who are different from us, I think that's that's how everything changes, right? We all reach out and try to just have, get to know each other and, and value each other's viewpoint and opinion. And even though we might disagree about certain things, it's still a valued opinion, you know? So, it is. And I can certainly do more of that as well. So, but anyway, this has been tremendous. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Abimbola, um, and all the great work that you're doing. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. 
We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.